Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Dave can go to Haiti for Christina and Eric to go to Cambodia for our interns and staff to be going to Kenya to see that the, the world is, uh, is under your control even in extreme poverty. And we pray, Lord, that we can be a part in being salt and light to the world, uh, just playing our little part as a church here in Oakland, that we wouldn't forget there are others outside of just our city, even though uh, our city needs us as well, but uh, that we would be generous with all of our resources. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you would continue to bless us with those as you you really have, and, and we thank you for your provision. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in First uh, Samuel chapter 26. Do you guys remember the Ziphites? The Ziphites that were there? They, they were the people of Judah. And you would think that they would be loyal to David because they were kind of homies with David in the southern kingdom, but they weren't. And so we're going to read that they're going to try and, and turn David in again like they did back in chapter 23, and they're going to try to do this again. So let's just start right into the chapter here, and we'll just start in verse 1. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gebeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakilah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakilah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, so apparently David has this vantage point where he could see Saul and Abner encamp there. Verse 4, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped, and David saw the place where Saul lay, with Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying with the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So what's the deal with the spear and what's the point behind this whole event that took place with the spear seemingly the focal point of this chapter? Now I'd like to propose that the main point of this chapter is that God's kingdom is safe within God's power. God's kingdom is safe within God's power. Now, God, in His power, He secures His kingdom. And because of that, we can move forward in confidence with our faith, move forward in confidence in our beliefs. And at times, we're assured of our faith. And other times, we struggle. Now, what we can take away from the narrative is having patience in our faith. Having patience in our faith. You take a look at verses 7 and 8 again. David and Abishai are standing over Saul, and when Abishai agreed to go on this mission with David, he probably thought that they were going to just do some ninja action, knock off Saul, get out. That's it, right? And so once Abishai and David are there, Abishai goes into this theological reasoning. 
And it's most likely whispered to David right there, you know, God has given this guy, he's given this enemy into your hand. Now please let, let me pin him into the earth with one stroke. Right? He, he won't even need two. Just one. Just let me do it. And now you, you read how David responded in verse 9. Do not destroy him. Right? For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And you're saying, how do you know they were whispering? Because there was like a ton of guys around them. They're probably not having a full-on loud conversation, right? Do not strike the guy. They're all sleeping. They're all good. So they're probably like having this theological debate here going back and forth and whispers. And, and what is David's reasoning behind his response and his resistance to what Abishai wanted to do? And it's important because the whole focus is around this conversation between David and Abishai. Verses 10 and 11. As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water, and let's go. So Abishai is ready to take Saul's life. David won't let him. So they take the spear and the jar of water, and they flee back into the night like two little good ninjas. And so, did you notice David's restraint here? Right, Like in chapter 24, when, when Saul went into the cave to relieve himself and to take a nap inside the cave, totally vulnerable for the kill right there, but David wouldn't let Saul be harmed by himself or by any of his men. Now, why such restraint again here in chapter 26, two chapters later, just like in chapter 24. And actually, this restraint here is even a deeper restraint than back in 24 because this time he knows that Saul is coming after him right after he said he's not. And, and he knows that he's, he's not going to let David live. He, he's wanting to go after him. So David's patience here is more informed this time. His restraint is more informed this time. And what we have here is a, a principle working over an impulse. Right? You take a look back at verse 10. As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. Now where did David get this from? Where did David get this idea from? Because remember last week we looked at chapter 25 and there was this guy named Nabal who insulted David. So David was going to wipe him out for this insult. But God restrained him, right? God took care of Nabal. In chapter 25, verse 38, the Lord struck Nabal. And it's the same Hebrew word we have here in chapter 26, verse 10. The Lord will strike him. Same word. You see what David is alluding to? That it's not just with fools like Nabal, but it's also oppressive people like Saul whom, whom God will take care of. God will take care of those guys. God took care of Nabal the fool without David having to do it himself. And so it will be with Saul the king. He's going to take care of it. God will take care of Saul just like he did Nabal. And so we see that David learned from his experience with Nabal. He learned from chapter 25. And he was able to relate it to that situation where before he wasn't. Remember, he wasn't able to transfer that wisdom that he had in chapter 24 to 25. But now he has learned from that experience and he's able to transfer it this time. And that one way or another, God will take care of it. Whether it's by God directly striking him or a natural cause or being killed in battle. One way or another, he's going to fall. And that David will be protected. But Saul will, be, will, will perish. And we're not sure how, but the Lord will do it directly or indirectly. It's God's deal. And we'll leave it at that. And David is not going to allow impulse 
to dictate over principle. And his principle is in verse 11. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Saul is the Lord's anointed and only the Lord can remove him. David is not going to do that himself. And so David didn't know how or when God was going to act. He didn't know in what ways would come about or the timing or or when this stuff would happen. And I'm sure he thought about a bunch of possibilities like we all do. But David was sure of something. David was sure that, that he wasn't going to put his hand against Saul. That was something he knew he wasn't going to do. And so he held to his principle and he held it patiently and he patiently waited for God to work And his faith in God allowed him to have that patience. David knew, right, verses 6 through 11, what his responsibilities were. He knew what he was responsible for. He knew what God would take care of, but he knew what he was responsible for. And this is really important to keep in mind when when we get impatient with God. It's important for us to know what our responsibilities are and to let God be God. That the things that are for him to take care of, he will. Right? And we need to know what our responsibilities are. What we need to hold on to to honor God. And, and we need to know what aren't our responsibilities as well. Things that God will take care of. And David knew what obedience was required of him. And, and that's all that he could do. He didn't know what God would do or when God would do it or how God would do it. But he knew what he was to do and he knew what he was not to do. That much he knew. And he left it to God and and we see how David's faith allowed him to have patience. So how can we apply this to our own lives as God's people? Well, there are infinite ways. Right? There are infinite ways to applying living by God's principles. I can't list out every single detailed thing in our life because every scenario changes. And it's impossible to spell it every single way. But let's just talk about a couple of them just to try to get the idea across. So let's take marital problems as an example. And you might wonder, you know, God, when are you going to kill him? Just kill him. Right? Like, or... or when are things going to work out for our marriage? Or what are, when are things going to get better? Right? And, and, and you don't know. Who knows? We, we don't always know. We are not in control, right? There's another party involved. You can't control that. And you can only be responsible for what you do. Not what that other person does. And you can only control you. And you're not responsible for what your spouse chooses to do or not to do. You can't choose that it's only you but you do what is required of you as a child of God you do know what obedience is called for as a follower of Jesus you don't know every single thing but you know some things that you can do and you can't do right you know that you can't commit adultery whether you're in a bad marriage or not you know that Exodus chapter 20 verse 14 Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 18 you shall not commit adultery You can control that. You're already in a bad place. That's not going to make it better. Right? And you you know that you are to cherish your spouse. You know that. You know that you're not to degrade, insult, to put down. You are to cherish each other. Right? Ephesians chapter 5 verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. 
And let the wife see that she respects her husband. So there are things that we do know. We do know some things. We can't control everything. But let's be responsible for what we can be responsible for. And we don't know how. We don't know what. We don't know when God will do things. But there are things that we are responsible for. And we do need to do those things. The rest of it, we faithfully and we patiently leave it to God and we wait. Or let's say you have a problem with the job that you currently have. Where you're gainfully employed, but you're not completely happy with what you're doing. And perhaps you'd like to get paid better to better provide for your family. Or you'd like something that's going to give you more time with your family. Or you'd, you'd just like something you'd enjoy more so, so you don't take your bad attitude back home and kick your dog. Whatever the reason. But let's say you just want to change and you've done everything you can to make that change possible. You've gone through different trainings and education and you've done a ton of research and studied. You've networked. You've gone to conferences and job fairs. You've done everything you can to do to take responsibility of a career change or a job change. So you've done everything you possibly could do, but the Lord just hasn't opened up something for you. But you've done everything you could do. And nothing seems to be happening. And in the meantime, you're just getting more and more unhappy with your job. But your job is supporting you. Your job is supporting your family. Your job is supporting those depending on you. So what is your responsibility? Well, your responsibility is to keep doing what you're doing with the provision that God has blessed you with, even though you don't like it for whatever reason. Sorry. But I need to free my spirit in it. No! Feed your kids. Right? You, you, you gut it out to, to the best of your ability, knowing that you did everything you can do. It's not to say that you're not pursuing it. You did everything you can do, and the rest of it you leave to God because you have to take care of your family. You can only control what you can control. Do everything up to that point, and after that, pray. Faith. But you have responsibility. You can only be responsible for what you can be responsible for. Right? The rest you leave to God. You stay where you're at. You work. Right? And and He's presently placed you. And you knowing you've done everything you could do in God's honoring way. And that's all you can be responsible for. We don't know how God's going to change things. We don't know what He's going to do. We don't know when He's going to change things. But we do know 1 Timothy 5, verse 8. And it's written, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Take care of your family. And the principle works in so many of our situations and and that we take responsibility for what we can do or we can't do according to God's principles, and the rest we faithfully and we patiently, we wait on God. And in this next section, verses 12 through 16, we're going to witness the the encouragement that faith receives. Verse 12. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. 
As the Lord lives, you deserve to die, because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed, and now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. And for any of us who wonder how David and Abishai could have this whole conversation without anyone hearing it, how can they possibly? The whole 3,000 men were around Saul. How do they get through those lines and, and get to him? Verse 12 tells us, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. And it was the power of God that, that kept them from knowing David and Abishai were there having a discussion about what to do and what not to do, as well as taking Saul's spear and taking Saul's uh, water bottle. Difference. But what's the significance? What's the significance of taking Saul's spear and his jar of water? Why, why those items? Well, David and Abishai wanted to make it really clear that they were right in the middle of Saul's camp, taking things that were right by his head, over Saul's body, that they were able to kill him if they wanted to, and they took items that would prove that they were right in position to take his life. That they were able to pull that spear up, and they could have put it somewhere else, but they took it. Right? Then, then David headed up to a hill that was a safe distance from Saul, and he started yelling at Abner, and, and, and he started yelling at Abner something that he already knew. That if you fell asleep during watch over the king you were to be put to death. He knew that. But this whole ninja mission, right? And then taking the Saul spear and taking his water bottle, it's, it's pretty telling. And it's as if the Lord was saying to David through this mission, Saul is no longer protected. Saul has no protection. It's gone. You are going to be king. Right? It's this affirmation that David will be king. And, and what an encouragement for David to be reaffirmed of his reign as king. What, what an encouragement David received to be protected by God in this really daring mission and to realize that Saul was defenseless. He couldn't do anything. That he could go right in the middle of Saul's camp, have a discussion, take a couple of items, leave there totally undetected. David could have killed Saul. Saul was without protection. David, by taking the spear, showed us in, in this picture form, Saul's disarmed. He's no longer armed against me. And, and a parable of what the future would be like. And Saul was without God's protection. And it didn't matter that, that he had these 3,000 soldiers around him. It didn't matter. God's protection was no longer with him. A very discouraging sign to Saul, but a very encouraging sign to David. And a sign of the future, a sign of what God was going to do, just as God had promised David, a kingdom for him to rule. Now, how do we apply this to ourselves? I think we have to be careful not to apply every single scenario into our life because I don't think every single scenario in the Bible is directly applicable to our life. Right? I don't think God will always protect us like he protected David from Saul. You're like, what? He's not? No, God, God won't always protect us from our souls. Right? Will we fall victim to California's next big earthquake? Maybe. Maybe not. A fatal car accident? A disease? Cancer? Maybe, maybe not. God doesn't always protect us from everything that happens in our life. The Bible doesn't promise us protection from all the bad stuff that may happen to us in our life. And some of you may be thinking, he did that for David. 
Won't he do that for us? Yes, he did do that for David for a season of his life. But we have to ask ourselves why God protected David the way that he did. And it's because David was the anointed king that God placed over his people and God said that David was going to be king. So he was going to protect, preserve him until he got to that throne. He was going to keep him safe until then. He made this promise. He made this covenant with David. And it's more, sorry to say this to some of you, but David's more important than us. Ooh, what? God has this. He's more important than you and me in this context. In that in God's redemptive historical plan for his people to to have a savior of the world, David had to make it. Right? It's absolutely essential that David be the covenant king that God promised and that the scriptures are laying out that he become king of the Lord's people and have that messianic line continue through him. And you and I aren't that kind of importance like David. I, I don't have Jesus' DNA in me. Physically. Spiritually. Physically, no. And I, I'm not saying we're, we're not important to God, though. I'm not saying that. We are. We're all His children. We are very important to God. I'm saying that we're not part of the redemptive, historical plan for humanity where, where the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, comes from and that I'm necessary that that continue. There's no promise of the Bible about that, that Albert Lee would carry Jesus' messianic line because that would be cool. But, but if we died, Jesus would have still come, right? Back then, if we were alive back then. It, it wouldn't matter in terms of the redemption of humanity. And so sure, my wife would be sad, I hope. and think My kids, I think. My dog, for sure. They would all be sad. But, but Jesus would still save the world, and God still had His plans, and the Lakers would still win the championship. And so, my death wouldn't be that big of a deal. In the salvation of humanity. Right? It's just not. So my life is not important in that sense. So David is a special person in this period of history. And is given this specific promise. And his life is extremely important for God to preserve at this particular time. And death will not touch David. He will be protected because he carries the lineage of the Messiah. So... You're saying, Pastor Albert, why, why are you saying all this stuff that God won't protect me from all my Saul situations? That, that's, that's a bad message. Not necessarily. But you're thinking like, what, what good is that message to me? You're just a jerk. Yeah. You're supposed to uplift me and encourage me, not just depress me and discourage me. Wait, wait a second. Let's, let's stop and look at the specifics for a second, okay? And rather than looking at all the details of the story, let's just focus on God here. This passage isn't telling us that God will protect us from every situation, every threat of our life, but this does help us see what kind of God we have. This shows us a God who is willing to, to come down, to stoop down to his child David during times of trouble, during times of distress, and encourage in those times of trouble that God's will will come to pass. That He's going to do whatever He said He was going to do, and He's going to do it. And God stoops down to the messes of our situation, and He gives us encouragement that His will will come to pass. 
And He knows when we need to be encouraged. That doesn't mean that God will keep us from our troubles, but we know the kind of God that we have. So the issue isn't about what God will do, but who God is. Who God is. We see who God is with His child David. We also see what God did for David, but He won't necessarily do for us what He did for David. But the character of God, who He is, doesn't change. Who He is. God won't necessarily do for us what He has done for others, but God will be for us who He is for others. Who God is for David is the kind of God He'll be to us. It's not so much what He will do for us as much as it is who He is toward us. So so don't go out looking to take people's spears and their sig bottles and don't go out there trying to create some some sign for yourself and make God fit into your schemes like oh I'm going to go right in the middle of that gang and I'm going to off that whatever however however God brings encouragement to you let it be God's doing it and, and we don't have to plot anything for ourselves right we don't we don't have to jump in there and do all that crazy stuff and the signs of encouragement don't have to be so dramatic Right? It could be really simple, right? Like, like a post-it note from your friend. Or, or a verse in Scripture that you just read when you were reading the Bible that just really ministered to you. And it might be dramatic or it might just be really ordinary. But either way, we have this encouraging God who, who shows up in our faith. A God who finds joy in encouraging us and He's delighted in giving us the signs that He cares and he loves, loves lifting us up when we're down. God who encourages us in our faith. And we just read the encouragement our faith receives. Now let's take a look at the distress that our faith feels in verses 17 through 20. Verse 17, Saul recognized David's voice and said, is, is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day, that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains." What does David mean here? They have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. What is he saying? He's saying that all this cat and mouse stuff is is making him leave the land. It's as if David is being told, Go, serve other gods. So, So did David really think that the God of Israel could only be worshipped in Israel? Did he think that? Right? True, outside of Israel, it, w- it would be pagan land. But did that mean that if he went outside of Israel, God could no longer be served? God could no longer be prayed to? Does it mean that? No, it doesn't. And you look at Psalms chapter 63, chapter 139, chapter 142. David knew that God didn't have borders around Israel that would forbid him from serving God to praying to God. And, and, and what David seems to be saying here is that If he's driven out of the land, the the heritage of the Lord, verse 19, 
He'll be leaving the presence of the Lord. He'd be leaving the Lord's face. Verse 20. And what he's saying is that if he left the land of Israel, he wouldn't have the opportunity to worship in public. The the public worship would be severed from him. And that saddened David. It really upset David that he would no longer have access to tabernacle. That he would no longer have access to festivals and feasts and, and sacrifices. He would, he would be cut from public worship. And so you look at Psalm chapter 63, verse 1. David wrote, Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. See, David is desperate. He craves. He longs for fellowship with God. And then verse 2. So, or some of your versions say thus. Thus, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. The sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. What does David mean? He's saying, the way that I found God's fellowship, His presence, His communion was in the sanctuary, in public worship, among His people. Where He doesn't have to hide, where He can be totally free to fellowship with with God and His people together in public and corporate worship. And cutting that type of worship, that brought distress to David. That would be hard, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be tough for you? Would, would, would not being in worship with others in community be important to you? Would, would you be upset if that wasn't available anymore? See, David wasn't isolated in his worship. David didn't just worship God on his own. He did a lot. But that's not all he did. He, he did it in community. And it was awfully important to him. You see how important it was to him here. He saw God's face in the sanctuary, in the public worship, with his people. Now, is community that important to us? For some of us, I think it is, because I see it in your life. But for, for some of you out there, it's not. And I'm calling you out on it. It's not. You just show up here on Sunday, that's it. But where's the other community aspects of it? Would not having a worship community upset you? And yes, you have it on Sunday, but what about the rest of the week? How much do we thirst, hunger, desire the presence of God in the midst of people, in the midst of a worship community? And if you don't care, then that's something you need to pray about and and talk with God about because to worship in community is important. You see how David was kind of really upset about this. So do we fully understand that? Now let's wrap this up by talking about the hope that our faith possesses. The hope that our faith possesses. And it starts out with Saul's confession here. Verse 21. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, for the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. Didn't David seem a little short with Saul in verse 22? 
Right? He doesn't have a full-on discussion with Saul or, or try to reason with him or, or do anything. He just says, here's your spear. David, so rude. So it's like, be more gracious. Right? He's apologizing. Come on. Right? But you recall that the spear is what Saul threw at David a couple times, right? That thing, he's giving it back to him. And so, you know, we have to be wise. Is there somebody that offended you really bad or that has repeatedly done things to you and he comes back and apologizes? Doesn't mean that you're like, okay, we're best buds again. Go ahead and take my house. There's a big difference between optimism and stupidity. Right? And we learn this, don't we? You get burned a couple of times and you start approaching things with more caution. Don't come up and ask me for money or the church. I don't have it. I've been burned a lot over nine years. I'll pray about it. You know, I'll help you with utilities and rent. I'm not giving you cash, though. I'll help you with other things. You want food? We'll go to Safeway or Lucky or whatever. We'll do that. But I'm not giving you cash. I've been burned too many times. I know, right? And so you start approaching with more caution. You start learning from these things. David knew Saul. He was in his court, right? He was an officer in his military. He was his son-in-law. His, his, his son, Jonathan, was, was his best friend. He knew this guy. David knew this guy really well. He had no reason to believe Saul, what he said. And actually, David showed where his hope really lied. Because I don't know if you guys caught this in verses 23 and 24, but let me just start reading it to you here. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of who? You? Of Saul? It's not, right? You would expect that that would be kind of the the way you would kind of continue that sentence there. You would think he would say say that, but, but David doesn't. Who does David refer to? The Lord. Right? He says, Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in your sight? No. May my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may He deliver me out of all tribulation. Right? David is placing his hope in God, not Saul. He's not placing his confidence, his future, his life in Saul. All of David's life, his confidence, his future, his hope, his protection, placed on God. Saul's not trustworthy of that stuff. David said in the last part of verse 24, And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. He as in God, not any man, All tribulation. May He deliver me out of all tribulation. There is nothing more important than being a disciple of Jesus Christ because we all have faced or will face tribulation in our life. There's no way around it. We all face difficulties. If you haven't, please let me meet you. I want to trade. No. We all have difficulties, right? We all all face hard times and you look at what the Lord does. May He deliver me out of all all tribulations. All. Nothing is left out. All of it. And so, if anything from this morning, please take this away. I may not give money, but you can give it to me. No. Um, <laughs> please, please take this away this morning. Know that God may deliver you out of all tribulation. All of it. Everything. Anything you're going through. Anything. Anything. There's nothing too big 
or even too small. You're like, oh, that's, that's, not, that's not a big thing. I just wanted vanilla. That, yes, all of it. I don't know why it would be tribulation, but maybe for some. And, and God can deliver you out of all of it, big, small. He can de- deliver you out of all of it. Only, only God, though. Some people can deliver you out of some things, but not all things. God can do all things. And you hold on to that hope that only God can provide, and He provides that through His Son, Jesus Christ, who made it possible for us to have such a relationship with God, for Him to take all that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You can deliver us from all tribulations. We ask, Lord, that for anyone here who doesn't know You, that they would open their heart to You so that You can deliver them out of all tribulation, that You can shower them with Your love, that You can show them that it's something more than just living life on their own, but it's life as a community as we come to worship you as as something that really influenced David, that he felt like he was forced to go and serve other gods. We know that we can worship you in private. We know that we can worship you outside of community. But not entirely. Only in certain times. But but we do need the community of faith to come together and and to celebrate, to have these festivals and feasts and and so-called sacrifices and and remembrance of who you are and, and honoring you and glorifying you and being of one accord. So Lord, I ask for prayer for those folks that don't know you. And I also ask God for those that are a little bit on the outskirts of community that that we would be able to encourage them, that we would be approachable and and friendly. And Lord, uh, apologize for anything that we've misrepresented you on, if we've just been too harsh or not approachable or anything. I just ask God that you would make us a community that is more warm and friendly and hospitable. In Jesus' name, amen.